the I'm With Who podcast, where we interview women of the world who inspire us. This week's special guest is the brilliant Emily McNish, a naturopath with a keen interest into women's health. She attempts to answer all of your questions on periods, pain management, and we also briefly touch on PCOS and endometriosis too. Emily is clearly so passionate about women's health and her energy is completely infectious. We loved speaking to her and we hope you find some sort of comfort from this chat too. So Emily, you came bouncing into the I'm With Her community, offering support to our members um, by answering all of their questions about women's health. So we decided that we absolutely had to get you on the podcast. And yeah, Emily, I've got to say your intro into the I'm With Her community was absolutely spectacular. You burst in. So we're delighted to have you here. Thank you so much. Let's just get started. So tell us a bit about yourself, first of all, for the listeners that don't know you. Tell us all about how this got started for you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me as well. I'm really, really excited to yeah be on the podcast today. Um, I guess what sort of drew me to it is my own experience with yeah, severe PMS, severe period pain, PCOS diagnosis, suspected endo, like that's sort of what has drawn me to supporting other people with those types of issues. Um, yeah, I have my own experience with all those sorts of things, completely dismissed by GPs. Um, and the biggest support in my life at the time was my naturopath um, who heard me. She referred me to some amazing GPs who listened to me as well. Um, and that's sort of where my passion for naturopathy came from and grew. And that's where, yeah, that's what kind of led me to where I am today. So I'm going to admit, I don't know a huge amount about sort of alternative medicine or naturopaths. Uh, and I'm really interested to find out a bit more, Emily. Can you sort of take me through what it is and, and how it works in conjunction with more traditional medicine? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked because I think there are so many misconceptions when it comes to naturopathy, which I so understand because the way that mainstream media and, and mainstream medicine sort of labels us, I, I definitely get where people's confusion comes from. Um, the first thing I sort of say when someone asks what a naturopath does is I say uh, we're nutritionists with a year of herbalism on top. And then the other way that I sort of say it is, do you believe that our diet impacts our health? Most people will then say yes. And then I say, do you believe your lifestyle impacts your health? Most people will then say yes. And then I say, well, you've pretty much summed up naturopathy. We use diet herbs, um, lifestyle, a lot of the time to bring the body back into balance. We don't treat things symptomatically, although we can provide symptomatic relief, but we, we believe in treating the root cause of disease. When should you go and see a naturopath and when should you go and see, a, you know, a traditional medical doctor or your GP? Yeah, this is a question that just makes me so happy because I think that we all like, you know, absolutely there are heaps of GPs that hate naturopaths and heaps of naturopaths that hate GPs, but that's not where, where healthcare is at its best. You know, integrative healthcare is so important. I think if we all work to our strengths, that's when, um, you know, we can help so many more people than we can all help individually being like, no, no, like that patient's mine or, or whatever. Um, and in terms of like when to see one over the other, I think it's about having both in your life. So I wouldn't go to an naturopath for a broken bone we can't do anything for that um, and equally GPs you know their strengths don't lie in gut health their strengths don't lie in period health that you know thyroid conditions um, even hypertension cholesterol levels uh, sleep insomnia energy levels that's just not their strengths just like my strength isn't fixing someone's broken arm <laughs> okay so let's talk a little bit about your sort of holistic health services am I right it's called soothing souls naturally 
it'd be really interesting to hear a bit about kind of how you started that, you know, what it is and, and what are the most common things that women come to see you about? Yeah, so that kind of began during my studies. I wanted that particular name because I don't believe like exactly what we were just talking about. Like I don't believe there's one modality that fixes all. It's all about using different modalities to different strengths to sort of, yeah, bring about that healing. Um, Commonly, the most common things I see in terms of one-on-one consultation with clients is uh, irregular periods are so common and also PCOS are, are two of the most common things on top of things like PMS, also very common, endo, um, endometriosis, sorry, uh, adenomyosis a little bit. Yeah, definitely dealing mostly with people's periods. I think that's a great way to segue into um, some of the questions that our members have actually put forward in the group. So we actually asked everybody to, well, under your post, you actually asked everybody to say, what do you want to know about? What do you want to hear about? So we've condensed it down and we're going to try and tackle as many as we possibly can um, for everybody today. But let's start with periods because that's where the bulk of the questions lay. Um, So tell us what PMS is and what the causes are. Yeah, so PMS stands for premenstrual syndrome and it has a bunch of different causes actually. There's no one, you have PMS, this is what caused it. Different contributing factors can be hormone imbalances. So there's two, uh, there's actually lots of hormones in our bodies, but two main ones we think of when we think of um, periods and they're called progesterone and estrogen and imbalances between those hormones. So when you have high estrogen in relation to your progesterone levels can cause PMS symptoms. Things that cause actually those higher to lower estrogen to progesterone levels are things like nutrient deficiencies, particularly in magnesium, B6 and zinc is a common one as well. And also your liver function and your gut health play a huge role in sort of getting rid of that leftover estrogen at the end of each cycle. So um, if your liver health is compromised or your gut health is compromised, your body can sort of struggle to get rid of those things. Other things that contribute to PMS are our neurotransmitter, um, our neurotransmitters. So uh, particularly GABA, and serotonin, which again, we need particular nutrients such as magnesium and B6 to produce those. So they're sort of like two um, yeah, main areas of PMS. And isn't PMS sort of inevitable part of a period? I love that question. I think it's so common, but we normalize it so much and it definitely doesn't have to be the case. Absolutely not. We don't have to put up with it. Okay, that's good. Cause I am really PMS-y today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she's raging quick i'm so angry (laughs) i have no resilience and just the fact that people exist irritates me not you obviously (laughs) yes emily for my personal safety is there anything you can recommend to izzy right now that will will help keep me safe (laughs) i'm very glad that this is virtual right now (laughs) anyway made this about me um so i'll stop centering myself in this entire conversation (laughs) So Emily, another one of the questions that actually we did get asked quite a bit is around kind of heat regulation during menstruation. And a lot of people find that they find it very difficult to kind of regulate their heat. They get very sweaty or very shivery. Is there anything that you could either recommend or is this something that you're familiar with in terms of those common symptoms of PMS? That was such an interesting question that someone asked because... um, 
It is something you you see. I wouldn't say it's one of the more common things, but there it is a bit of an orange flag that needs to, they sort of, my best recommendation for them would be go to their GP. They need to tell their GP that they're having hot flashes if that's the way that they would describe them, just because they need to have a hormonal panel done in their bloods, um, just to rule out a couple of things that this sort of may lead to. Um, and if everything with that comes back normal, I'd be looking at what else, like what other what other hormonal imbalance signs do they have? Do they ha experience PMS? Is the heat, um, you know, is this heat regulation issue all through their cycle? Do they experience food cravings as well? Do they have period pain? And that would sort of then lead to maybe like a little bit of better clues of what might be causing it. And I think what I really like about the way that you sort of described that thought process is that very often, you know, and I'm again, hashtag not all doctors, but very often when you go to a doctor, a, a traditional GP, and you, and you try and speak about sort of issues around, for example, periods or menstruation, um, there, the idea of being asked that number of questions and really digging into my lifestyle and really digging into kind of the area around it and all that sort of thing actually seems quite alien to me in those sort of 15 minutes that you go to discuss your symptoms. And that to me seems a little bit of what we're talking about here in terms of the more holistic health services is about having those bigger wider conversations and really digging into who that person is and what their lifestyle is and and those sort of things would that would that be a sort of fair representation of, of the work that you do yeah a hundred percent like that is just such a another great way to differentiate naturopathy with gps and i think like Absolutely. We sit with our patients for, you know, up to an hour and talk about them. Um, and GPs, you get 15 minutes. But again, I don't want to bag GPs. There, there's some amazing GPs out there and it's just not their job. They have 15 minutes to get through, you know, what they need to get through. And I think that's when, you know, working with the strengths of each um, is really, really important. Yeah. I think exactly that it's working in sort of you know together in parallel. Which uh, actually the idea of being able to sit and talk to somebody about my health for an hour sounds actually quite amazing, quite liberating. <laughs> Lucky them. <laughs> Menstrual irregularities occur in an estimated fourteen percent to twenty five percent of women of childbearing age. Talk to us a bit about this. Is that necessarily a bad thing? What are the causes, and and what should we be looking out for? Yeah. So I guess your first question around that is, um, is it necessarily a bad thing? And I guess that depends on what a menstrual irregularity is defined as, because if someone has a regular cycle, so it comes around every 25 to 35 days, um, and it's quite regular, uh, you know, uh, ongoing, and then they have a month where it's late, that's generally nothing to be worried about. But if someone is going from 21 day cycles to six week long cycles, um, you know, and it's really jumping all over the place, then yes, that is something that needs some further investigations done. Um, just because even in terms of your long term health, um, the, there's some particular hormones involved in the menstrual cycle that's, uh, that are important for bone health. And also we hear of it so much as being uh, like the, the health, you know, the, the showing your period is your health card, right? So the way your period, you know, I always think of irregular periods as being, it's just a symptom of something else going on and that whatever's causing it can present in other ways as well. Like you might have poor gut health, you might have thyroid issues. So actually, yeah, I definitely don't think it's a good thing having irregular cycles continually. Yeah. So I think, you know, when, when we're talking about kind of irregular periods, it, it is that um, distinction, which I think you've made really well, Emily, between you may have slightly sporadic periods or they may be a little bit up and down, but that's always 
always been your cycle compared to somebody who's had a very regular cycle and is suddenly experiencing, you know, something very different around their cycle. Um, so, for example, Emily, I'm going to ask your advice now. And um, I have a really long cycle. It's quite regular, but it's very, very long. It's 38 days, which obviously does sit outside of that normal window that we talk about. Should I be worried? Do I need to go and see either you or a doctor? I'm, I'm, get, I'm getting medical medical help now. <laughs> Let's get it in there. Tell me all about it. 38 days and it's regularly 38 days. Like that's has your... always been 38 days. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have uh, any issues with that. Uh, the Yay! fact that it's right. Re- Yay. Yeah. <laughs> Celebrate. Um, just in terms of uh, your eggs will be very, very ripe and developed when you do ovulate, which can cause like issues with pregnancy and co- conception. So w- does it make it easier for me to fall pregnant or harder for me to fall pregnant if I've got over over ripe eggs? Mm. <laughs> um, it can make it harder just in the sense like your uh, your eggs won't be at their optimal quality necessarily yeah. but in saying that there are so many other aspects and so many other contributing factors to falling pregnant so um, yeah it's definitely not the the be all end all um, but you're it's kind of like having a vegetable that's a little bit uh, soggy in the fridge that you should have used a week ago <laughs> it's just a little <laughs> bit overripe <laughs> delicious no that's that's brilliant. Thank you. And uh, on a plus point, I'm definitely not having any more babies. So I'm thrilled that that, that <laughs> makes good. that a harder job. <laughs> right. Uh, on that delicious segue. <laughs> no, I think it's really good to talk about like, because all of these things in theory all make sense um, when you explain them. But when they happen to yourself, that's probably the hardest thing to know when to ask for help, who to ask for help from. With that in mind, women talk a lot about in the group about being more connected with their own bodies and understanding what signs are, how to read their bodies more. Um, Do you have any advice for people who want to connect with their bodies more? Yeah, I think I loved this question. Like I love this question because I think there's so much pressure. Like we put so much pressure on ourselves to be so connected to our cycles these days. And I think the first thing you need to do is release that pressure, relieve yourself of that pressure. You don't need the extra pressure to actually be so connected to your cycle in month one, you know, and I think the, if you're the first step to take to being more connected with yourself, more connected with your cycle is one, download a cycle tracking app, um, start tracking that. Uh, and lots of cycle tracking apps actually have room to, uh, log other symptoms. So I always think, I mean, yes, you can, you can open your phone, you can log whatever symptom you're feeling today, whether it's like tender breasts, um, like moodiness or like any other symptom, they have all symptoms to choose from. Um, you can log, you can open your app, log in, however you're feeling or, but what I find so much more powerful and so much more like in line with becoming in tune with yourself on your, on your cycles is actually just like waking up or before you go to bed, putting your hand on your heart, putting one hand on your belly and be like, how am I feeling right now? Like, how do I feel? And I think just taking that time to really to really actually turn inwards rather than just swipe up and, and start um, putting in our symptoms is actually just such a key part of, of starting to be, develop that relationship. I absolutely love that because I've had a cycle app for so long and it's taken me two years to really know what my cycle's like. And I think that's because I just relied on the app to tell me rather than to think about how I feel. So you've, that's now, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there. So I'm going to move on uh, away a little bit away from periods, although to be honest, I think the two are very entwined. I want to talk about pain management. Um, it's a huge issue for a lot of women. And again, around, you know, especially around th- uh, heavy periods or PCOS or endo. Um, 
We want to look at other ways, perhaps, to manage pain uh, outside of the sort of traditional um, pain medications that we might get from a GP. Is there anything that you might be able to suggest for people who are looking to move away from that and, and want to take a more natural approach to managing their pain? Yeah, pain is one of the biggest things I'm passionate about in terms of periods because I think there's so much about your periods that invisible, but pain is such an invisible thing and we put so much pressure on ourselves when we are in pain to get up, go to work, go like whatever. Like we've made plans. We can't let people down and just to get up and do it. And I think it just makes it so hard because it is such an invisible thing. Um, I feel like in my brain, I separate pain management into two different categories. Pain management that you can do at home. That's really simple, more of a lifestyle thing when you uh, get your period or just before like leading up to your period and also nutrients that are important for um yeah, period health and pain management. Uh, in terms of the first side of things, things that you can do at home would be gentle stretching. Let's not underestimate that your, your uterus is a muscle and releasing and relaxing that muscle can have, yeah, make such an impact. Um, also warm compresses. So warm comp compresses of ginger, essential oils of, yeah, of either ginger or actually using fresh ginger. You could use chamomile, but also um, clary sage is a really good one as well. Um, so warm compresses over the area, heat packs, let's not deny those. Uh, teas are absolutely incredible. So the top two or two of the top herbs that are really simple to access that we recommend for period pain are ginger and chamomile, but not just drinking those when you're in pain, actually drinking it like in the lead up to your period, particularly if your pain is on the severer side can have such an impact um and also keeping yourself warm leading up to your period blood flow and warmth to the area is also really important so if you're experiencing pain before your period start implementing some of those lifestyle things before your period um the other things I think of are nutrients. So magnesium is a huge one in terms of its muscle relaxation capabilities as well. And also omega-3, but a good quality omega-3 um, is another one of my top ones. Also zinc. Um, yeah, they're sort of the three big ones that I think of pain management. Yeah. Oh, that's really helpful. Thank you. I'm going to stock up now. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be in the health food shop tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, with my massive basket. I'll be like, Emily told me to. Um, the next thing I just want to touch on is also about um, how you keep up your energy during your period, or even if we should be trying to. <laughs> um, I definitely suffer from like that energy lag. Um, so do you have any suggestions in regards to energy? Yeah, I think the thing that you said, like, if we should do like you know is is your 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 body like leading up to a period and while you're bleeding is about to do this incredible thing like shed this whole uterine are you kidding like we do this all the time like it's such a it's so incredible that our bodies can do that and I think recognizing that yeah your energy should be lower during that time and it, it's so normal and I use the word should because it really should be um just slightly low. I'm not saying like you shouldn't be able to get yourself off the couch, but it's so normal and, and it really should be normalized for us to be like, and need that little bit more rest, need that hour extra sleep every night in the week leading up to your period and on your period. Um, in terms of things to do while you're, uh, like when you're actually feeling that energy slump, I always, always, always question someone's sleep. What is your sleep like? Are you actually, are you getting, are you allowing yourself to have that extra night, uh, that extra night, that extra hour of sleep in the lead up to your period? Um, uh, is your room completely dark? Are you doing some sort of bedtime routine? And I think 
I know you asked me about energy in relation to the periods, but I think that's really important to acknowledge as well that your sleep ties in so well and just taking that extra little bit of time of to rest um, definitely shouldn't be overlooked the importance of that. Um, in saying that, if you're feeling like so fatigued on your period, like so fatigued that you're struggling to do anything, get off the couch or anything, um, that is, yeah, we want to think about magnesium, think about B vitamins for symptomatic relief, but also just general balancing those hormones with some herbs herbs and stuff that we've got as well yeah I think the thing I've been trying to remember since um coming off contraceptive and um just sort of living very naturally and then trying to make the most of my cycle and like I'm really grateful that I have a cycle and that it's regular and I should be really happy with that um and very grateful that I do have that and it is quite easy but on those PMS days I'm just like oh why it's so hard but I want to kind of remember it's not the period that's the problem it's the world that we live in that doesn't make us comfortable or allow us to say I'm sorry but I'm going to do this tomorrow we just have to be on form every single day and and I think that that's the issue not necessarily the fact that you're going through this cycle Totally. Absolutely. And I think of it, it's just such an act of self-respect to ourselves to take that time to just be a little bit slower and, and slow down a little bit. And I just think of it as it's self-care. Sure. Absolutely. But it's actually a form of self-respect to, to acknowledge that you are, you know, you're about to bleed. You're, you're PMSing hardcore, it sounds like as well. So Emily, we actually get a lot of questions about PCOS. What would be really helpful if you could tell us a bit about what PCOS actually is, what people should be looking out for, and you know whether there are any common myths about it that you would like to smash into pieces? Yeah, so PCOS stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome. And one of the most common misconceptions about it is that it actually has something to do with the ovaries, which it has very little to do with the ovaries. It's actually a metabolic disorder. So two of the main characteristics of it is high, in- uh, sorry, high test testosterone levels or and insulin resistance um and uh, your cysts, uh, the cysts on your ovaries aren't necessarily, they're not actually cysts, they're more just underdeveloped follicles. So if you're not ovulating consistently, which is another key characteristic of PCOS, you'll just have these eggs that aren't being released from your ovaries, which will present as what they like to call cysts on your on ultrasound. Um, and PCOS cannot be diagnosed just by ultrasound. Um, if you go for an ultrasound, like an internal ultrasound, a transvaginal ultrasound, um, which they, they stick the probe up your vagina, which is just... <laughs> That's not fun. But if you do go for one um, and they do that and they say that you've got PCOS, what you actually have is something called polycystic ovaries, which is PCO. um, And you need some blood tests as well to get the PCOS diagnosis and treatment of PCOS is actually through dealing with that insulin resistance and dealing with those high testosterone levels. And it's, it, it is a lifestyle, more of a lifestyle disorder. And there's so much naturopathy can help with. And I think people just think that it's something that they've got for life. And, uh, you know, they're really worried about conception, which absolutely can be an issue with people with PCOS, but there's so much we can do for it. And it's not, you've got PCOS, you can never have children. Here you go, go on with the rest of your life. But yeah, it's so much treatment with the underlying um, cause that we can do. And what are some of the symptoms of PCOS? Um, Some of the symptoms would be excess hair, particularly on the chin, or uh, excess dark hair, particularly on the chin, I should say. Um, Also weight gain, but lots of people with PCOS can be quite slim. Um, Irregular cycles. And then again, like the cysts on the ovaries on ultrasound is, yeah, more of a presentation type picture. 
So I think we've we've touched on the issue actually a couple of times during this discussion, but obviously the other side of things is that all of these things that we're talking about can or certainly feel like they can have an impact on fertility. Now, obviously, many people want to control their fertility in order to not become pregnant. And there are also people who want to be able to look at their fertility in order to become pregnant. Is there anything that people can do naturally to help sort of increase uh, their chances of becoming pregnant, for example, especially if they do have conditions like endo or PCOS or um, you know any of those kind of associated issues? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the way that the person will increase their chances of becoming pregnant is depending on what they've got. So if it's PCOS, it would be dealing with that insulin resistance. So making sure you're eating really good quality, like high protein with your meals, um, reducing those refined sugars. And if it's endo, dealing with more of the endo presentation side of things. So it's depending why the person, like it's all dependent on why the person's struggling to get pregnant, but absolutely, it's not slap a label on you. You'll never get pregnant. Um, we, We definitely work with those types of things. But in terms of what they can do from home, it's a bit of a tricky question to answer because it depends why they're struggling yeah no uh, absolutely understood and I suppose as somebody who's kind of gone through the whole trying to conceive process a couple of times I guess you know actually coming into some of the things that we've talked about being able to track your cycle so you understand where your fertile days are where they not you know where, where you're not going to have any chance of getting pregnant anyway um, and actually really interesting that you talk about diet because obviously as we know there are lots of sort of small lifestyle changes that you can make to help improve your health which can in turn, help to increase your fertility. But again, it's a conversation that needs to be looked at from a number of different angles. So thank you, thank you, because it isn't as simple as these are simple things that you can do. Um, but actually being able to understand the root causes of that and then working with your, you know, your medical team or your health practitioner to be able to improve those chances is is a conversation that we would urge people to have if that's something that they, you know, they're interested in doing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's the thing as well. I, I I can imagine there are some people who would want to listen to this podcast and they come out with answers for something that they're going through. And unfortunately, health is not something that that's simple. There's not a one fits all scenario. Let's say someone thinks that they might have PCOS um, or they want to find out if they do and how to manage it. Do they go to the GP first? Do they go to a naturopath? Like what's the process which they should follow? Yeah, really good question. So if someone like want, knows that they have in their mind that, hmm, I think I want to see an naturopath, my biggest suggestion is go see the naturopath first just because they'll be able to refer you for the blood tests that are most indicated for your case through your GP. Um, otherwise, if you want to, another good way is find yourself a good GP, one who will actually listen. Um, and there's so many good GPs out there. And if you find one that won't listen to you, go find another GP um, and just tell them your symptoms. And a good GP will, should be able, like, will, that's their job is to order the appropriate tests and a good GP will order the appropriate test and then bring your results to a naturopath and they'll look at it individual to you. Um, a, kind of like a bit of a myth is we, uh, like a, a fun fact about naturopathy is we use different reference ranges to GPs. So their vitamin D reference range is different to the one that we use. We look at the hormones very specifically, even when things like estrogen, particularly um, estrogen, I mean insulin, particularly with things like thyroid is a huge one where um, we'll look at it and be like, wow, you have an issue with your thyroid. The GP will look at it and be like, oh, your thyroid is completely normal. So I think like even if you don't want to see a naturopath, lots of naturopaths will do like really short consults just to look at blood tests. And I think it's so worthwhile just to really get a good, just, just triple check everything over. Yeah. Why does the GP and the naturopath, like why do you have different um, levels of 
what's normal. We looked at we look at optimal health. Like, uh, is your health optimal? Whereas they look at is your body in a diseased state? And I think that's where the two greatly differ. Yeah. That makes sense. And um, while we've got you, I'd love to learn a bit more about endo because in my head, endo and PCOS sit in the same camp and I'm sure they're incredibly different. Um, how do the symptoms of, of endo show up and what are some things that people can do um, to get it looked at? Yeah, endo is... I know I would say like every answer to every question feels like I started with, this is something I'm so passionate about, but <laughs> endo has a very close place for me. And I am so passionate about like endo because so many people with endo just completely fall through the cracks of the medical system. Diagnosis takes years. GPs dismiss them. People dismiss them. And it's just, yeah, it's so, um, my heart just goes out to everyone who has endo because I think it's a very horrible disease and it's, yeah, I just see so many people suffering with it. Um, And uh, in terms of symptoms, that's another tricky thing with endo is symptoms can vary so much um, from like painful urination, painful sex, um, painful periods is obviously one of the biggest ones, heavy bleeding. Um, one of the other strange ones that you wouldn't expect is IBS, like IBS like symptoms. So issues with digestion. If someone comes in with digestive issues, we always, always have like endo on the back of our mind as well. Um with diagnosing endo, I feel like was the other part of your question. Uh, first of all, finding yourself a good GP is so important and finding yourself a really, really good surgeon. The only way to diagnose endo is through a, what we call a laparoscopy um, and it's type of surgeon, uh, it's type of surgery, sorry. And um, there's, if they find endo, what they'll do is they'll use two ways of getting rid of the endo and they're both hugely different. They both vary in quality so much. So it's um, called one method is called ablation, whereas which is where they burn the top of their the endo endo yeah endometrial like tissue off, and the other one is called excision, which is where they basically dig out the endo from the roots, and it takes a lot a lot longer for a surgeon to be able to perform uh, like excision sort of ther- um, sur- surgery. So I think the most Im- biggest thing for people with endo, suspected endo or not is just to really make your, make sure you're heard. Find yourself people who will listen to you in your medical community and fight for yourself. Like you will, you know, you're having a symptom. If you're experiencing the symptom, it's absolutely real. And if anyone dismisses that symptom, go find a new new GP or whatever and, and really advocate for your own body. That's so great. Um, I have learned so much. So thank you so much. And it's really fab to see you in in real life as well. It, like in, yeah, in well, yeah. virtual, virtual real, real life. life. <laughs> I'll take it after the last year. <laughs> I did. It's been, yeah, so lovely and yeah, so much fun. And it's, yeah, equally been just as nice to meet you both. Yeah. Thank you so cool. much, everyone. Right. See you later. Bye. Bye. We wish we could tell you all exactly what to do to fix your health issues. But once again, our guest points out just how complex these issues can be. And if we can't magic you better, we do hope that these conversations will at least help normalize these issues, empower you to advocate for yourself and realize that you are not alone. Thank you so much for listening. As usual, we are taking a two-week break from the podcast to revise, replenish, and create some really great content for you. So we will be back in your ears then.
But if you are missing us and missing the podcast, come and join us in the Facebook group. Come and meet the community and take part in some of the conversations there. Until then, take care and we will speak to you soon. Bye. This podcast has been recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. We take inspiration from the rich history of storytelling within the cultures of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and respect their endless resilience and strength.